therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Thank you, Jim and Cindy. Thank you for honoring God's word. We begin today really with the question that we must keep on asking in our years together, and that is, what is the church? You think you all came here today. You say, why did you come here today? Or maybe a better question would be, what does this minister think he's doing when he takes 25 minutes to open up the Bible? See, these are big questions. See, some of us raised in the church, you say, you just kind of follow the normal calendar. It's Sunday morning. This is what I do in, on Sunday morning. This is the way I was raised. And here you are, the church. Say, is that where it ends? Say, really, what we're going to try to do is take the next seven weeks to drive at this question to say, what really is the church about? Why are we here? And what ought we do? You know, a sobering thing for me, I hope for all of you too, is how often in Scripture uh, God is not pleased with how his people are gathering. Have you noticed that? You say you read something like Amos 5. It's quite funny. He said you, you're assembling and you're going through the motions of your sacrifices, but God is not happy. Say we never want that to be the case. Say God lays it out for us what the mission of the church ought to be, the kind of healthy activities that reflect who he is. It'd be a terrible tragedy if we missed our moment. And so again, the idea here is to spend this time, as I said, really last year is when in my mind I wanted to do this, but uh, given all that happened, God's timing said this year. But the idea is as we hit the fall as a church to have a great swell to say every person that considers Providence Church home, you say this is, I'm a member here, to know exactly what the mission is, and to drive at it as God would call us to do. So you heard me announce all these different things, right? The young professionals and the college ministry and the great women's uh, breakfast yesterday and there's men's ministry stuff. Say all, think of all those as arrows to say we want all those arrows in our church driving at the central mission. To say this is what Christ has called us to do. It's a complex time. We must be vigilant. We can't be lazy. And we certainly can't come here just out of routine. And so you ask, say, what is the mission of the church? Say, a lot of us, you hear that. I know many of you in the marketplace, you say, kind of roll your eyes with mission statements. Do we have that cartoon to put up? Say, I think you might be uh, something like this is what you have in mind. Manifest excellence beyond a paradigm of betterment with magnitude of implementation of probity and cohesion with coalescence and diversity of purpose steadfast, bounded only by our prescience and prescience and predestination as we gloriously emanate eminence for the divine unified triumph toward quintessential destiny. And you say, well, what are the two businessmen saying? I'm not happy with the new mission statement. I can still understand parts of it. Uh, you see, a lot of us feel that way, that we really overcomplicate this that we try to get cute. We try to use big words. Say, is that really where we should be? Say, try to make this as very simple as possible for my own sake. Say, not only is it a, not, not a wordy paragraph, but I, I think that uh, the central mission of the church, the, the case that I want to drive at here with you, we can think of as E squared, almost a mathematical form, E superscript two. Say, those two E's. Edification and evangelism. You say, what do you do at Providence Church? Why do you go there? Say, well, if you're a Christian, 
We're building each other up in faith. That's the edification. Did you catch to full maturity in Jesus? We invest in each other's lives to build us up into more confidence in Jesus. And when we scatter, as we will for six and a half days, that we bear witness to the kingdom of God. Say again, I think those two little words, edification and evangelism. And today you say, well, why Ephesians 4? We'll spend a lot of time here. Very important chapter. I think the fullest in a way say, what is the purpose of, how does Paul understand the church? What are the big principles? Did you notice, right? That why are we all here? Say there's pastors, everybody's together. All the saints are here. Why? For building up the body of Christ, verse 12. Or again, how about verse 16, right? From this whole, the body joined together, which is equipped for each part, properly makes the body so that it grows and builds itself up in love. Or again, verse 29, right? What's good for building up? That Paul's saying a central function of the church is that when God quickens your heart, right? You're born again. You're called into a community of believers, that that community of believers on its mind must say that I'm here to build up the other saints. That we're more confident in who Jesus is, we're more aware of our own sin, we're more surrendered to him, and quite frankly, I love him more than I did when I started coming to this church one, two, ten years ago. Say, that's the idea. We build each other up. Say, the second E, which we'll come to again in some weeks' time, but evangelism. To bear witness to Jesus, you think here of the Great Commission. That all of us who call Jesus king, that when we go out into the world, people should say, you know, that's a life, that's what it looks like when Jesus is your king. Say, that's what it's like for somebody who's experienced grace, and that we would be excited to bear witness to our king. So again, not a wordy mission statement, hopefully nothing confusing, two E words. We're about building up the believer to more maturity, to fullness in Jesus, right? That we never quite arrive this side of heaven, but we want to build each other up to full maturity in him. And for those who don't know Jesus, I want to show them what it's like to have Jesus as king. E squared, edification, and evangelism. That's what I think I'm doing. Say, I, I, it would, wouldn't it be a, a real tragedy if all of you came here for a seminar and I thought that I was you know, making you into good New Testament scholars or something? You say, that would be a real tragedy. Say, why are we here? For greater obedience to Christ. That he's our savior. That we would delight in him, be confident in him, actually be excited to build each other up and to go out into the world and to show his great love and his grace. We build each other up. We tell the non-believing world about it. Now, the question comes, say, E squared, I got it. You know, so it's there. We build each other up. We evangelize. The question becomes, how do we behavioralize the mission? I think it's the way we put it. Say, behavioralize is not a word. It's a made-up word. How do we put it into action? Say, what do we actually do? So we have all these ministries going on. You say, we sit under this teaching. Say, well, what's the point of all this? So what we want to do is to be locked in on this is how you behavioralize the mission. These are the activities of the church for the times in which we live. You know, a phrase that I come back to is, is one of engaged orthodoxy. See, I like that phrase, an engaged orthodoxy. Say, you need the orthodoxy. Say, that's the right belief. That's the truth, that we're all sinners, that we've been alienated from God. Say, left to my own devices, I please myself. You know, God's not in the picture. I don't want to be accountable to him. Yet God put forth Jesus. And I can be reconciled to God through his blood and made right that he's Lord and Savior and King. And quite frankly, whether people think that or not, it's still true that he's Lord and Savior and King. Say, that's the truth, but that needs to engage the world, right? you got to get it across to say, I've got it up here. Say, all these great doctrines, but how do I engage with the world? 
and get it across to a broken and hurting world. So what we're after is an engaged orthodox. So we've got the mission, right? We edify, we evangelize. We must behavioralize it and be on mission together. So again, by way of preface comment, again, this is gonna be a seven-week discussion and really an ongoing discussion because we must revisit it, what we're doing as a church, what we're doing on Sundays and so forth. Bold, bold point number one on your notes before I get any further. When we speak of the church, we're referring to the covenant community of God. The called out people, those who actually think Jesus is king. So when we, we, we use the word church casually, don't we? We say, well, I'm, I'm going to church. And what most people hear, there's, oh, you're going to 35295 Detroit Road or wherever you, you go to church normally. Say, that's what most of you, you're going to the building of the church and you go there for, for an hour and five minutes and you get your seminar and, uh, you know, you get, you get a bit of Christian virtue and we all know we need to be, it's better to be honest than dishonest and Jesus is good for that kind of thing. And so it goes. Say, that, that's not the idea that the word church really means those who are called out. That it's the, the people of God called to him, the, the covenant community of God. They say how refreshing that is. I, you know, lived overseas for six years, and, uh, you know, in, in England, and it would come up, say, well, we know you're American. By the way, I don't fool anybody when I'm overseas. I've never been confused for anything but American. Uh, it might surprise some of you. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so they ask, oh, well, where in, in, in America are you from? You, are you from L.A.? I say, no. But you're from New York. I say, no. Uh, you, are you from around Disney World in Florida? I say, no. Well, where are you from? Ohio? So well, I think Oh, Iowa? No, no, that's different. Say Idaho? No, not Idaho. Ohio. And I end up saying it's kind of the Middle East, which makes them even more confused. I'm from the Middle East. Um, so, uh, <laughs> but they would look at me and say, well, what are you, Ohio? What are you, what are you doing there? And, and I say, well, well, that's my home. I was born here. These are my people. And I say that, you know, I, all, I often go back to Acts 17. It's been such an encouragement to me. Paul's preaching on the Areopagus. And he says this line. He says, God sets everybody's time. Say, wonderful comfort there. None of us can live beyond what God has ordained. You say, isn't that a comfort? Say, I can't, no matter what I do, I can't live beyond what God's ordained. But then Paul says, and God, God set your boundaries. He says where you're going to be. And I'd like to think all of you, I don't know why you're in Ohio and say maybe you're born here like me, which is great. Maybe you've moved because your in-laws are here. Maybe you're here because your job took you here. Nevertheless, you're here. And I hope that it doesn't stay at that kind of shallow level of, well, just the tides of time and the business opportunity took me here. I hope there's a real theological conviction that God has set my boundaries. He's put me in this place. He's called me to a covenant community with other people who think Jesus is king, and I'm called to a task. That you're not here by chance. That you look to your left and say, why, are we in why aren't we in South Sudan? Because God has set our boundaries. He's called us together as a people. We've surrendered to him, and we have a mission to do, a job to do, to build each other up in faith until he calls us home and to tell the world about him. You see, it's not casual. We can't be lazy. And that's not to say, some are saying, well, you know, there are, there are other churches. Of course there are. Say, we most certainly believe in what's called the invisible church. There are a lot of good Bible-teaching churches. There are brothers and sisters all over the place. Nevertheless, God's called us here in this time, in this place, for a short period of time to do his work. And how short it really is. You know, that was true in previous eras when people were less transient. How much more so now? I sometimes feel as if, you know, pastor gets really used to saying goodbye to people. Say, last week, 
Pete and Brittany Stacy and their boys, uh, deep roots here at Providence. Hey, that's a tough day. But God has called them to Oklahoma because he has set their boundaries and they're there to build up the saints there. The point I'm driving is, that, do you think it's a, just a you know, kind of happy accident? Oh, I'm here, I'm sitting in Avon. Yeah, I, I attend it. You say, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm one who thinks Jesus is king. I'm part of a covenant community and I'm called to a task and I want to be on mission. That's the idea. Now, you, you probably, you say, well, this isn't, how controversial is this? And actually, it's a little bit controversial. This is why. A lot of American evangelicalism, I think with, with really good motives, so I want to be careful here, with really good motives, has actually come down thinking that the church is not really the covenant community of God, but rather the church is a kind of uh, mechanism to um, play games with the non-believing world. So you, you, this comes under different, again, I, I'm trying to be very careful here because I think the motivation is good, but this is the last 40 years in American evangelicalism. Sometimes you hear the label, seeker-sensitive, sometimes you hear an attractional model, sometimes you hear pragmatism. But the idea is, well, if we actually behave as Jesus is king, then it's going to scare non-believers away, and the church is never going to grow. I think that's when we want the church to go. We want people that, so, so what happens is you start to smooth off the, the corners of stuff that you find the culture might not like. Uh, you just say, well, you know, that's a little bit dodgy in today's world. Let's just get rid of it. And then the non-believers who are here, they won't think we're such weirdos. And, and uh, the church is going to grow and everybody's... And, and you say, well, that, I think that, that's gone the exact opposite direction. Let me give you an example. So we, we did a communal confession today. Pragmatic model says this. If a non-believer comes into our church and sees all those people who are really good people. I mean, they all, all, right? we're good, good people. We, we do our jobs. We're generally kind. We don't you know, swear that much. We, we don't commit adultery. We're, we're really good people. And they see all these really good people, and they're, they're, they're actually you know, confessing sins to Jesus, that they actually think that they've not been great people this week, and, and that they're saved by Jesus's blood. Say, now that's weird. I can't and what happens, though, is that when you get rid of the communal confession, I think it goes the exact opposite direction. What I mean is, 10 years in college ministry, you know how many college students have come? They've been weighed down by guilt. Weighed down by guilt. How do you offload that guilt? Is there a fresh start? Is there a way forward? Is there anyone big enough and powerful enough to cleanse me and to set me on the right path? Say, so then you come into a church and you see all these people say, you know what? I'm not a great guy, but Jesus is great. And I can be assured of his pardon when I trust him as Savior. Do you, do you see what I mean? Is that when the church fulfills its mission, that when we're locked in on pleasing Jesus, that that's when the church is at its best missionally. Not when we pretend that we don't believe the stuff that we do. That's plainly in the Bible and what Christians in all times and all places have believed. So the, what is the church? The church is the called-out community of God. He has us here for a short period to build each other up and to tell the non-believing world about him. And this, we say, God will work in us and through us. The worst thing that we can become is an echo chamber of the culture. May it never be. May we be those who surrender to Jesus as king and live for him. All right, now to the text. 4-1 begin in 4.1 here, this great uh, section on the church. And really, I just want to park for a moment on this one word, probably not a word you expected to hear a homily on this morning, but in my ESV, it's the second word, therefore. I therefore. Now, 
Inevitably, someone here will say, I can't believe Shaw is doing this. You, you know me well enough to say, I don't really start in the middle of books, so please forgive me this. I'll try to build a case. So why are we starting in chapter 4? In our years together, I promise we'll go over Ephesians 1 to 3 in great detail. detail. Ephesians 1 to 3 is some of the most uh, theologically rich sections of the whole Bible. You say, how it all works, what God has done in Jesus, I'll just remind you, right, these wonderful lines, right, all of you were dead in your trespasses, uh, that we were separated from God, alienated strangers, without hope, far off. However, God has put forth Jesus, and his blood has reconciled you. In his flesh, he's reconciled you, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of your works, so that you may boast, for this is your God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So it's a wonderfully rich, right, those first three chapters of Ephesians, a wonderfully rich doctrinal treatise on who we are and who God is and why Jesus had to come and the foreknowledge of God say a lot of really good stuff there, but then you get to 4.1. Therefore, in light of this, if you're those who believe you were alienated from God, that I sinned against God, that I've done my own thing, but I've been bought back with Jesus, does it just stay at the head knowledge or does it come into practice? And 4.1 is that movement, right? The second part of Ephesians is all the way that we behave. Now, therefore, in light of what Jesus has done for you, this is how you behave and this is what you are as a church. So what will happen if, if we don't understand the therefore, the next seven weeks where all these commands are coming for the church is they're not going to make any sense to us, right? Because we've not been surrendered to Jesus. We don't think Jesus is, you know, if you're not, not a believer, you don't think Jesus is that great, that you don't need him. You, if, you don't need, if you don't think you need to be saved, why do you need a savior? You get the idea that Paul is making the assumption that these commands to the church come to those who've surrendered to Christ. In light of what he's done for me, who I am and what he's done, therefore, this is how I behave as a Christian, and this is what the church is about. So this, therefore, I, I think it's the, really the ultimate word of an engaged orthodoxy. The first three chapters of Ephesians, your orthodoxy. The second three cha chapters, your enga engagement. Say, why do we always want to separate those two? Say, we can be a really heady church and a knowledgeable church, but far away from what God wants us to be doing, or we can kind of play church and go through the motions and have no idea why Jesus came and can't explain it to anybody or, or you know, any of these great deep truths. Say, no, may it never be. It's an engaged orthodoxy. Is that this is who we are. This is how God has acted. We've surrendered to him, and in light of that, we obey and delight and we behave as the church. All right, so the therefore, linking the doctrine and the practice. So baseline now, really, the all build up to this point. You say, as we behavioralize our mission, looking at this chapter, where can we start? And we start, as the title of the sermon says, with a lifestyle of repentance. Say, yes, Jesus is the foundation of the church, but the foundational practice of the church, I think, is repentance. It's a turning towards him. So if we can put that scheme up there, that you'll see this a lot. I've been fortunate in my life to have a lot of, a lot of mentors that are uh, way smarter than I'll ever be, who've run churches a long time, that this, uh, in dialogue with uh, the Burnham family, who took me under their wing, say, you know, 60 years of pastoral ministry. I don't think this is, uh, you know, used in any churches. They said, Austin, in, in 60 years, this is what we've learned. They say, this is how you live out your, your mission. 
So you'll see me refer to this a time and time again. You go on our website, the team's just uh, done a really good job updating this. You go to values, we'll talk about this a lot as a church. Again, I want everybody at Providence Church to say we're about edifying the believer, evangelizing the non-believer, and this is how we've behavioralized the mission and the foundation as we go forward. Each pillar will be, be a, different, uh, a different practice as a church, but the foundation of the pillars is repentance. And in our chapter, you say, I think you have one of the great descriptions of the posture of, the, of, of repentance given with the metaphor of clothes, don't we? From verse 20, and this follows, again, Paul talking about what it was like before we knew Jesus, that our hearts were hard, that we were calloused, that we were blind. Isn't that something? Before we knew Jesus, it was like we were blind. You say, think about describing yellow to a person born blind. You say, it'd be almost impossible. That's the idea here, to say, I was blind to the things of God until God quickened my heart, and how easy it is for us to slip back into those kinds of things, greed and lust and the hardness of heart. But what does he tell these Ephesians? He said, but this is not the way you learned Christ. You say, I love that phrase. Not the way you learned Christ. Those of us who are in him, who've surrendered to him, that we live differently. He goes on, assuming that you have heard about him, which we have, and we're taught in him, which we are, and as the truth is in Jesus to, here we go, put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in the true, righteous, in true righteousness and holiness. You say, you got the action there, don't you? You say, there's something to put off and there's something to put on. So you put off, the Bible calls the old man, not the old male, the old person. Say, the old person's dominated by, by myself. Say that it's going to crop up, right? You can never que uh, altogether get rid of the old man, this side of heaven, right? That we were born into our, our sinful natures, that those of us who are Christians, even a long time, you'll say, that old man still crops up in me. You say, I'm still inclined to look out for myself, to be greedy, to be lustful, to be hard-hearted, to be selfish, that it's always there. Paul says, put that off and put on Christ. Turn to him. See, that's what repentance is. It's not a one-time thing. See, the reformers are absolutely clear on this. You have the quote from Calvin there. Luther said the same thing. Say, repentance is not a one-time thing you do when you're, you become a Christian. You say, well, I've turned from my sin and turned to Jesus. Glad I got that done. Now I'm a Christian. Forget about it. No, what they say is that repentance is the very disposition of the Christian to say, Lord, I am a great sinner, have you seen that, how those who we would say are the most holy people, sometimes you'll say the most mature Christians are the ones most acutely aware of their sin. Why is that? Because they are really tuned in to who Christ is and who they are. And just how pervasive this theme is, I've got it again in the notes, say what are the Old Testament prophets oftentimes, what are they preaching to the covenant people of God, the Israelites, what they're saying, repent, turn back. Return to me, God says. Pay attention to me. You're my people. Look at me. Don't look at the world. Say, what are Jesus and John the Baptist? What's the first thing they preach? Repent. What do the early apostles preach? Re repent. God grants repentance unto salvation that we don't regret that the people of God posture themselves to think differently, to pivot our minds, to change direction, and to be absolutely devoted to Jesus. You know, I feel always that I have way more things to say than I have time, but I, I guess here's, here's the point that we gotta take away today. Say, any motion forward we have as a church, 
it doesn't begin with great programs. It doesn't begin with the people, if there are more people coming here, it doesn't believe if we have more money. It doesn't start with our building. What it starts with is if the people of Providence Church are really committed to Jesus. That the members of our church really delight in who he is. That we've been bought back by him. That we have a job to do because of what he's done for us. That we've been called into this time and place. That I'm really devoted to him. Not just going through the motions, but that I love Jesus. You know, practically, I said, you know, be very practical this series. There's a prayer that years ago I said. I thought of it again this week. It's just one of those things I got out of the habit of doing. But something like this would be how I'd like to posture myself as a Christian. See what you think. God, this is a new day. I freshly commit myself to the role you've invited me to play as you are building your church in this world. I'm awestruck again today that you would include me in this grand, life-giving, world-transforming endeavor. So today I will joyfully offer you my love, my heart, my talents, my energy, my creativity, my faithfulness, my resources, and my gratitude. Now, I never do that. But I'd like to think that I would posture myself in such a way to say, you know what, you know that phrase, borrowed time? Say, yeah, we're all on borrowed time. It's God's time. That you're going to go out this week, you say you got a lot of appointments on the calendar, a lot of unexpected appointments, a lot of things to do. You say, well, God, I want to turn towards you this week. Say, I want to be acutely aware of my own sinfulness, how easy it is for me to go astray, to adopt that old man, to say, you know what, I want to turn back to Jesus and live for him. But the foundation of what we do, again, as a church, is whether we adopt a lifestyle of a commitment to Jesus. That's where it starts and say, what do I hope to do? Each time we open the Bible on Sunday morning is precisely this, to make everyone here more aware of who we are, sinners, and more aware of the greatness of the Savior, and to promote a lifestyle that honors him. So I'll invite Jim and the team back up, and we'll close with these two edifying hymns, I, I, I do hope. Lord, I am so inclined to adopt these behaviors of the old man, the callousness of heart, the looking out for self, the comparison game, and on and on it goes. Lord, help us see that we're to put, put off that person and put on Jesus and his righteousness by your spirit. And Lord, with all the confusion these days about what the church is, you know, the programs, the echo chamber of the culture, the, another place to be politically correct, say, may, that not, may, may we be absolutely locked in on what you want us to do. For those of us who are Christians, to be built up into full maturity in Jesus, to be more and more like him. And Lord, for those who don't know who Jesus is, that we would testify to that in a winsome way, not winsome in our own might, but winsome by what you're doing in our lives. So we commit this to you. Help us to adopt a lifestyle of repentance, of turning towards you, and that you would have your way in our church. For Christ's sake, amen.